You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. I want to begin this way. Have you seen, um, have you seen the, the, the Greatest Showman? Yeah, you seen that? Okay. I'm a Johnny-come-lately on that deal. I didn't want to see it. I thought uh, it's like singing, and it's about a circus. And there was not anything about that movie that appealed to me. I mean, I, you know, I was like, P.T. Barnum, for real? And so, um, and, but my daughters had seen it. You know, everybody in my family had seen it, and uh, everybody's playing the music. And so I am on a flight, 12-hour flight, to Cairo, Egypt. And listen, I'm serious. I have important stuff to do, all right? And so, you know, I'm going to read and, and be studious. Well, I get tired, and I'm sitting there, and there's a TV in front of me at my, in my seat. It wasn't first class. It was way at the back. But anyways, the, um, so there it is, The Greatest Showman. It's on there. I've heard everybody talk about it, and I thought, well, I don't have to pay for it. Here I am. Uh, well, it's not exactly true. But anyways, there I am. I'm watching. So I say, okay, I watched The Greatest Showman. Well, the next two hours are some of the most riveting two hours of my life. I absolutely loved that movie. I mean, I loved it. I, I, was, I was sucked in from the very first moment, so much so that on the flight back, I watched it again. And I'm seated, uh, so it's middle of the night, airplane time anyways, middle of the night, there I am watching, i got my headphones on, Leslie's asleep. And I'm sitting next to, well, not to, but across the aisle, uh, Mike Johnson, who's one of our elders He goes downtown. And he's sitting over there. And I'm watching this thing, and there's a scene in there. And, I mean, all of a sudden, I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to cry. And I'm like, I'm holding it back, you know, my eyes, you know how it does, you know, they fill with tears. And all of a sudden, that one drop, you know, and it's like, and it had to be the left side, you know, where he's sitting and so I'm like, first thing I do is I look over to make sure he's not looking at me. Sure enough, he's looking at me. I'm like, I got something in my eye, don't worry about it. Um, it's a great show. You know, it's interesting, it's this cautionary tale. I'm not going to spoil it. If you haven't seen it, go see it, but I'm not going to spoil it. But it is, it's a cautionary tale of P.T. Barnum, okay? And sure, you know, I mean, uh, uh, movies, they, they have a crisis point. I mean, every every movie does. That's how the arc of stories go. And, and you hit a crisis. And so the, the, the he hits his crisis. And, and listen, it's not just P.T. Barnum's crisis. It's my crisis. It's your crisis. It's, it's actually the crisis of humanity. And that is, listen... What the things that you focus on, you're going to pursue. What you fix your eyes on, you're going to go after. And there is not anything in this world that will satisfy that. In fact, there is this song towards the end that he ends up singing. I'll, I'll just tell you the lines of the song. You, you see the movie, you'll figure it out. But he said, I saw the sun begin to dim and felt that cold winter wind blow cold. And a man learns who is there for him when the glitter fades and the walls won't hold because from then rubble one remains. It can only be what's true. If all is lost, there's more I gain 
because it led me back to you. Lost everything. Chased it, had it. Goes on the next verse. I, I drank champagne with kings and queens. Listen, this is a story. This could have been sung in the garden in Genesis 3. I drank champagne with kings and queens, politicians, praise my name. But those are somebody else's dreams. The pitfall of the man I became. For years and years I chased their cheers. The crazy speed of always needing more. But when I stop and see you here, I remember what all this is for. Now he's singing to somebody. Humanity. Humanity. This is, this is humanity's cry to God. I've chased it. I have gone after everything in this world. You know what? I don't... I am left with nothing at the end of the day. And listen, that, that's humanity's story, and it's your story, and it's my story. And if you haven't come to that place yet, listen, you will. But what you're chasing will not be enough. There is only one place to set our eyes. And this is what Paul is going to say to the church in Corinth. See, see, there are churches, he writes four letters to them. We only have two letters. This is likely the, the last letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians. They are believers. He has come to them. He has given them the gospel. Many have believed. And yet, there's... They're still seeing with eyes that care more about the world than they do Jesus. They're still seeing through the lens of what is significant as far as world standards go, and they are missing. They are not able to see with the spiritual eyes what it is that God has for them, what it is Christ has done for them. And it has manifested itself this way, that Paul, he was the... One that brought the gospel, established the church, loved him. He leaves, and some other guys come in after him. They look better, and they sound better, more attractive, and they have a different message. And these people are like, well, that doesn't sound so bad. That doesn't look so bad. And so Paul's writing them to say, hey, listen, don't forget. And so he, that's his point here. He's going to defend his ministry, his, his gospel, and he's going to call them to something greater than what they see with their own eyes in this world. So, so look with me. I'm going to start. So it's 2 Corinthians 5. I'm going to start in verse 11. We're just going to walk through it verse by verse and, and do it, I hope, quickly. It, it is one of the um, most clear passages where we hear, the, I think, the most clear and succinct statements of the gospel and what it is. So he starts, verse 11, that, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. So, so he begins there, listen, I, I want you to know, Corinthians, what, what compels me, it's two things, that, that this is the first one, we'll see the second one in a minute. What compels me is the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. And you say, well, what does the fear of the Lord mean? Actually, that phrase only shows up twice in the New Testament. The other time it shows up, 
right after Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. Mostly the New Testament says, hey, listen, we haven't been given a spirit of fear. Well, we aren't fearful. And so he's not talking about this terror. He's talking about an awe before God. And, and I think the referent is there in verse 10. If you've got your Bibles open, it's the verse just above it where he says, listen, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. You'll, you'll stand before Christ. Paul knows this. I, I, I live with the reality that in a blink of an eye, I could be standing before Jesus. One writer says the thought of standing before a being so holy and so morally superior, so removed from evil, that His presence, uh, that in His presence all human boasting and all human pride and all human arrogance would vanish as He stands in speechless humility before the One, the One who is beyond understanding and with trembling lips gives a full account of that's what he's talking about. The awe of standing face to face with Jesus. And he says, and so because of this, I am compelled to, to persuade. I am compelled to, to give this gospel. I, I, am, I can do nothing else. My life has been completely transformed. I can't do anything else. So, and, what, and what is known... I'm known to God. What's known, who we are, is known to God. God knows who He is. God knows everything. He's not trying to persuade God. He doesn't have anything to prove to God. He does want the world to know the gospel, and He wants the Corinthians to stop talking trash about Him. That's it. That's a, tech, that's a Greek term for it. Because here's what happened. The, the false prophets, they come in. These, these false teachers, they come in and they look they look good. They, they look good. Look, look at verse 12. He says, we're not, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. He's, look, he's, not, saying, he's not saying, hey, look at me, look at me. He, he, I'm not trying to commend myself to you. I just want you to know that when those folks come in and they talk trash about me, you don't have to nod your head Yes. He goes on, he says, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and, and not about what's in the heart. They, they only talk about what's on the outside, about what looks good, about what looks efficient. They have nothing to say about the heart. I mean, the Corinthians, they were embarrassed. They were embarrassed of Paul's message and his methods and his imprisonment and his hardships and and, they, and the false teachers would come in and say, hey, listen, I don't know about you, but man, real religion, real religion brings you good stuff in life. And look at Paul. That guy said nothing but hardships. Let's count how many times he's been stoned. Let's count the scars on his back. I heard he got, I heard he got stoned and then thrown off a wall. And everywhere he goes, it seems there's suffering and hardship and trials. He's even been arrested. 
That doesn't sound like good religion to me. Good religion is supposed to make your life better. It's supposed to make you look good and make your life better. Paul must be doing it wrong. But the thing is, they were it was all outward appearance. Paul says, hey, why don't you look at their heart? See, listen, we get captivated by the same thing. We, what they offered was a life that looked good. That they they were attracted people to themselves. People wanted to be like. Well, we do the same stuff. I mean, you don't have to admit it. Don't raise your hand. I don't care. But I mean, we're drawn to it. We're drawn to talented and beautiful and successful people. I mean, we want to know their secrets. Now we want to know how are they so thin. How's their skin so good? How do they get? How they get? To, how can they do so? Much? What's the, what's their seven habits or ten habits or what? You know, what do they eat? I mean, we want to know that stuff because something about us is well. If I'll just do that, I'll be like that. Hasn't changed. Paul says, "Hey, listen, I'm not interested in that in the least. All that is fleeting. It is temporal. It is earthly. I am concerned." I'm concerned about what is eternal, what's lasting. And he wants them to know, listen, your eyes, they're, you're, you're just seeing with plain old human being eyes. You need spiritual eyes. You need to see life through the lens of Jesus. That's why he says, look, verse 13, he goes on, if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. They thought, Paul, you're crazy. The things you do, they don't make sense. It seems irrational. Look, if I seem to be... Um, if, if, if my actions and my life seem unexplainable to you, I just want you to know, I don't care. It's for God. He knows. And when I do seem like I'm in my right mind, it's for you. You remember the movie Rudy? Um, you know, Frodo plays the guy who wants to play football at Notre Dame, but doesn't have any money to get into the school, and his grades aren't good enough for his scholarship. And oh, yeah, by the way, he wants to play football, and he's too small and too slow and not athletic enough and has dyslexia, can't, can't even get into Notre Dame. So he goes to the junior college. He's, takes some tutoring. He lives in a janitor's closet under the stadium. And, and he goes out and he just wants to be on the practice squad. I mean, he, he just wants to make the team. It's been his lifelong dream. And, and yet you look at him and you go, that's foolish. You've done nothing but invite hardship to yourself. And he's ridiculed by everybody around him. You know how the story goes. The last game, you know... That's how they saw Paul. Paul, you're ridiculous. Maybe I am. But if I am, it's because of what God has done inside of me. And I am here to tell you, I am never going back. And Corinthians, I don't want you to go back either. In fact, he'd say to the Galatians, they had some promise. He said, You foolish Galatians, who bewitched you?
reason is, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Everything Paul does is because of the love of Christ and because there's no getting around that reality, this love of Christ. He says, one has died for all, meaning Jesus. Therefore, all have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but one, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. He's talking about this love, this love from Christ that produces a love for Christ. Christ's love for us motivates, enables our love for Him. And he's, I'm, I'm constrained by that. It hems me in over here. It hems me in over here. I'm controlled. I am controlled by the love of Christ. I can't get over it. It's all I can see. Let me ask you this morning. You want to ask? Let's ask some hard questions. It's church. Let's ask hard questions. What controls you? I mean, it, some of us, some of you, you're controlled by yourself. I mean, you're trying to improve yourself, create, create a better version of yourself. You know, I mean, I'm just trying to get to Ross 2.0. I mean, if I can do that. You know, it, if it's all about me getting to a certain place, or all about me cleaning this thing up, or all, all about me you know, securing this Everything else in my life becomes a means to an end for myself. Even God becomes a means to an end. Are we controlled by others? Maybe what others think of us, or, or our, our spouse, or our friends, or, or even our children. Our lives can be controlled by, by the thoughts of other people, or at least what we think they're thinking. The fear of, of being left out of stuff, the it comes, you know, needing this this acceptance from those around us to be esteemed, to be cheered on. Listen, that creates wreckage in our life. I'll give you an example. So my wife, she is amazing. She's an amazing mom. She's an amazing wife. She, she loves the Lord. She, she, I love to hear her pray. She's fierce, she's loyal, she, she's sensitive, she's forgiving. She's a great listener and encourager, she's best in field. She's amazing. But do you know what she's terrible at? She's terrible at being my God. If I go to her with with my most ultimate needs, with, with the thing I, I desperately need the most. She can't validate my life. She cannot save me. She can't. She can't make my life worth anything. She's not my creator. She is not my God. She is not... She is not suited for that. God may choose to meet some of the needs I have through her. 
Listen, we we do it with our spouses. We do it with our children. Oh, they're they're terrible gods, by the way. We do it with our careers. We do it with our looks. We do it with our bank accounts. We need something to to validate us. Listen, all those things, all those things will let you down. There is no way. There is no way they can hold the weight to justify your existence. They cannot. Who you are, who you're longing for, can only be validated by the one that created you, by God. And you have you have sin and shame and guilt and brokenness in your life that keeps you from Him. So that's why, that's why when we go to all these other things to try to fix ourselves, Paul is saying, listen, Christ's love controls me because I know He died. Now he's going to go on some more, but the other thing, I'll add one more thing. Sometimes we can be controlled by this outward appearance, this outward sort of morality that really, at the end of the day, it matters how you look. You've got to look good. You've got to act right. You've got to be making some progress. And I'll tell you what that turns into. You talk about making a wreck of your life. You become the, you become the most judgmental planet person on the planet. You're going to judge others for not being as good as you, and you're going to judge yourself for not being as good as them because you're working off the wrong... And outward behavior is so misleading. So misleading. In fact, that's what Paul says. He died for us. God created us for the purpose of living for Him. He died for us so that we can live in Him, for Him, with Him, because of Him. Revelation 4, 11. The old King James Version. It says, for thou hast created all things for thy pleasure. They are and were created. You were created for God's pleasure, and you only know your pleasure in His pleasure. So we are left fundamentally when we take our first breath with this huge problem. We have these great needs that have to be fixed. And yet we can't do anything to fix them. can't do anything about our sin. We can't do anything about our brokenness. We can't do anything about our temper. can't. Something had to be done. Paul's getting there. He wants the Corinthians to know, listen, you're looking for love in all the wrong places. So verse 16, he reminds me, he comes back to this idea. Listen, from, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We, we don't, so we don't look at things according to the way human standards appraise them. We, we, 
the way that society esteems things and affirms things and calls something good or calls something... Listen, we don't regard that anymore. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we, we used to see Him. This, I think this means Paul knew who Jesus was. Paul was in Jerusalem. Jesus was in Jerusalem. Paul met with a bunch of Pharisees. Uh, Jesus met with a bunch of Pharisees. Paul was a Pharisee. I, I, we don't know, but I can't imagine Paul didn't know who Jesus was. And his estimation of Jesus was, this is a guy who's misguided. This is a guy who's leading people away. And so he spends his life now trying to stamp out all the remnants and followers of Jesus. To, he becomes murderer. Persecutor. I used to see him that way. I don't anymore. We don't see the things we don't see things the way we used to. Paul says. Corinthians, you don't need to see things the way you used to. You have been given spiritual eyes. You've been made new. We see things new. Our eyes have been opened. We see spiritually now. We see in color. That's why he says in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Listen, the new world has been born. And it's been born into you. And now there's a new way of living that goes with it. It's like when a couple has their first baby and now all of a sudden everything's different. They see everything different. Can't help it. A new... A new day has dawned. Or you move to a new country. You've got to learn a new language. You have to learn new rules. If you don't, you don't learn that language and you don't learn that rules, you will live out of place. You won't know what's happening. That's what the Corinthians are doing. The old world, listen, that's it's gone for you if you're a believer. Paul uses this favorite phrase, you know, according to the flesh. I don't see that way anymore. It's old, corruptible, who we were. We've been transformed. And then he goes on and says, look, all of this is God's work. God's doing this. It is what, listen, Christianity is about what God does for us not what we should do for God. That's not the heart of it. In fact, one Spurgeon, he says, Beloved, if you have no more religion than what you've worked out in yourself and no more grace than what you've found in your own nature, you don't have any at all. A supernatural work of the Holy Spirit must be wrought in every one of us if we would see the face of God. Embrace His Son, Jesus, by faith. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses, not counting their sins against them, 
entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Reconciliation literally means to, to exchange something, to, to change one thing for another. What gets changed out is this. We were enemies of God. That gets taken away, and now we are friends of God. Exchanged one for the other, we have been reconciled. We could never reconcile ourselves with God. This is why God had to pursue us. He reconciled us. And you know, do you know how He did it? Do you know how He takes us from being enemies to friends? To, from being objects of His wrath objects of His grace and His love. He does it by sending His Son, Jesus. And God, because He is sovereign, and because He's holy, and because He's righteous, He, he can't merely look at our lives and go, you know what? Humans will be humans. I, and he looks over at Jesus, and looks over at the Holy Spirit, I don't understand how that works because they're one. Because, you know, humans will be human. What are we going to do? No, before the foundations of time, before a word of creation is spoken, God knows. And sends His Son, eternal, only begotten, Not to come here and live a, an exemplary life, although he did. Not to come here and show us how life is supposed to be lived, although he did. Not to come here and to root for us and to encourage us. You know, I came from heaven. I just I had to come down here because you guys seemed lost. And I just wanted to root you on. He didn't do that. He came here so that when he had grown to full measure and stature and had lived his life, and taken on humanity in the incarnation. He allowed the humanity that He created to turn on Him, to arrest Him, to beat Him, to shame Him, strip Him naked and nail Him to a cross. But more than that, then God takes all that wickedness all that sin, all that rebellion that was in their hearts and is in your heart. And is in your heart and you don't even know you don't even know what's all there yet. Because you haven't lived all your life. All your sin, past, present, and future sin. And he takes all of that and he puts it on his son Jesus. That's why he says here, look look, look at this twenty and twenty one. So we've been and, made ambassadors, we make this appeal, be reconciled to Christ. Because in 21, he says, for our sake, he made him to be sin. Didn't make him sinful. He made him sin. The one who knew no sin. He took all that was ours and put it on his so that we might become 
the righteousness of God. We might become right with God. And then God, on that Friday, after Jesus is shamed and humiliated and beaten and nailed to a cross, God then pours out the full foaming cup of his wrath on his son. And he died for you and for me. He lays dead three days and then he rises from the dead to new life so that you can have One died for all. If you believe him and by faith you trust, listen, that's my solution. That's my answer. That is the only way I am reconciled to God. That is the only answer for the sin in my life and the great needs that I have. And by faith, you've died with him brought back to life with you, live in him. That's what Paul's saying. You want to be right with God? That's, that's how you're made right. You know, it's fascinating. I'll close with this. Talking about how, how do you see life? Where, where are you aimed? Where, where do you, with what eyes do you see things? Jesus spent three years with his disciples. And I know a lot of us think, man, if I'd have had three years as a disciple, I mean, at least I'd have been better than Judas. I'd probably been better than Judas, right? The law of averages. I mean, if I could have just seen that, I'd have no problem believing. But in Mark's gospel, it's this very interesting thing. Mark, Mark tells this story that none of the other gospel writers tell. It happens in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, only four verses. Jesus has just fed 5,000. He's walked on water, and he shows up at this place called Bethsaida. It's at the north end. He's coming back down because he's headed to Jerusalem for the last time. In fact, Mark, it's like this hinge in Mark. You realize, oh yeah, Jesus is headed that way. And, and what happens is, is at Bethsaida, when they get there, they bring this guy to him, and this guy's been, been blind, and, and he's been blind all his life, and, and they bring him to Jesus to heal him. And so Jesus does something, a couple of interesting things. He takes this guy, and he, and he comes just outside of the town, and he brings only his disciples with him. So he's not doing this miracle in front of the crowds. He's only doing this miracle in front of the disciples. And he's, I think he's doing it because I think he wants to communicate something to his disciples. And it's interesting. Because what Jesus does is he spits, you know, he reaches down, picks up some dirt, spits in it, makes some mud, puts it in his eyes, wipes it away. Says, all right, open your eyes and tell me what you see. The guy says, well, I see people, I think, but they look like trees. And I always thought people and trees were different. I mean, he could see, kind of, but not really, but kind of. 
I mean, he wasn't completely blind. But he couldn't completely see. And then what Jesus does is he touches him again. And now all of a sudden, he can see. There's been a lot of talk about that. Some people say, well, that's, you know, you need two ch- touches of Jesus. Well, no, that's not what that means. No, it's like the disciples like, hey, G- I, you're having a bad day, Jesus. I mean, you fed 5,000 people, you walked on the water, you, obviously you're tired, you know. Never seen that before. No, I, I think he did that for the sake of the disciples. I think what he wanted the disciples to know is, hey, listen, you know me, but you don't know me. You see me, but you don't see me. You're following me, but you're not really following me. You still see with the eyes of the world. You still think like an old man. I want you to see. We know this because then Jesus will tell his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem, and when I get there, this is going to happen to me. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be stripped naked. I'm going to be shamed. be nailed to a cross. I am going to die there. And I'm going to lay three days dead and breath. Then I'm going to rise again. He's telling them what's going to happen. He's telling them what's going to save them. You know what Peter's answer to that was? (laughs) You need some rest, Jesus. That's not, you got it all wrong, man. We're going to Jerusalem. We're going to take Rome. He had his own agenda for Jesus. What Jesus should be and what Jesus should do. Should we do that? Talked about it a few weeks ago. I only want $3 worth of Jesus. You know what Jesus said to him? Get behind me, Satan. You're seeing like the world sees. You're seeing like the prince of this world sees. not here for your agenda, Peter. I'm not here for your agenda, Ross, or any of us. Well, the second time, he does this three times, the second time, they, um, he tells them that this whole thing, and you're going to go, you're going to go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen, and so then he begins to walk, and the other disciples are behind him, and they begin to have this conversation, and they, the conversation is, um, which one of us is going to be the greatest? I mean, we know it's not Peter because he's Satan. So, which one of us? They didn't know Jesus was listening. He turns around and he says, You don't get it. You think it's about being great now. No, no, no. The least now becomes the greatest then. You seek your greatness now. You seek your somebody status now, however you do it. There is no reward. We think two times is enough, but there's a third time, and I can't believe it happened. So this all happens from chapter 8 to chapter 10. Jesus tells them for a third time. This time, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, one of the gospel accounts tells us that this 
mom that comes with your mom comes with them. Say, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. One of us was to sit at the right hand and the other at the left hand in, in glory. He says, is that, is that right? Um, here's how he answers him. Whoever be great among you must be your servant. And whoever be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man didn't come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. No, no, you don't get it. We're here to give our lives away because we've been given life. Our eyes are focused. Our life is constrained by the love of Christ. God's love for us through His Son, Christ to reconcile you to Himself so that you might live. You might live in Christ what you were created for. What are you pursuing? What are you aimed at? Where are your eyes fixed? I would say this. It's you find yourself, you know, one of those options of pride and it'll be something great and can't wait till the... And I would say this. Take your eyes and focus them on the cross. Which John, in 1 John chapter 4, says, you want to know what love is? You want to know what love is? It's there. God's love for you. And then you begin to see everything else in your life through the lens of your Savior dying for you and you living in Him. That is who we are, believers. And if this morning you're here and you're not a believer, let me just say to you, as Paul would say, as he did say to the Corinthians, be reconciled. Be reconciled. It is not something you do. God has done it. Receive it by faith receive, trust, believe that Jesus has done it all. Trust Him and live. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I, I pray You would give us...